Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We have what are called uh, the Three Amigos. And the Three Amigos are Secretary Perry, uh, again, Ambassador Volker, and myself. And we've been tasked with sort of overseeing the Ukraine-U.S. relationship. Welcome to the new EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and this is the number one EU politics podcast. And you just heard Gordon Sondland, the US ambassador to the EU, who finds himself at the centre of President Trump's impeachment battle. That clip was from an interview he did in July with a Ukrainian TV station. And we'll get to Sondland in a second. But first, we have some breaking news here in Brussels. Sylvie Goulart, a key nominee for the next European Commission, has been rejected after her second hearing in the European Parliament. Now, Goulard was set to take on a kind of super commissioner role in charge of the EU's internal market, industry, defence, space and more. And she wasn't just any nominee. She was French President Emmanuel Macron's nominee. So to break down what just happened, I'm joined by our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hi. So how big a deal do you think this is? Well, this is a big embarrassing blow for Macron and also a setback for the commission president-elect Ursula von der Leyen, who now looks like she may not be able to take office as scheduled on November 1st. Sylvie Goulart is a former member of the European Parliament herself, so quite dramatic that she was unable to convince her former colleagues to support her candidacy. She faced ethical questions about misuse of parliament funds in paying an assistant after His contract was apparently over. She also faced questions about a high-paid job with a U.S.-based consultancy for which she did very little work, but while she was serving in the European Parliament. Right. So they're also a bit of a political backstory. Those were the issues that the MEPs focused on here, especially the, the ethics question. We should say that Sylvie Goulart says she, did, she didn't commit any offence, but she is under a kind of preliminary investigation in France. And there were also questions about the size of this super portfolio and whether any one person could really manage it all. But there's a kind of political subtext here as well, right? There are a lot, there's a lot of angry people on the kind of Team Macron today. Well, Two other commission nominees were rejected, one each from the conservative European People's Party and the center-left party of uh, European Socialists, the Socialist and Democrats group. So there was seen some retribution potentially by knocking out Goulart, who is a member of Renew Europe, the liberal group uh, that Macron is a part of. But of course, the MEPs who cast this vote say it was more substantive than that, that there wasn't any kind of revenge, that this, in fact, was about her portfolio, was about the ethical questions, really pressed her on why it was that she had to resign her post as defense minister in France because of this investigation, but should be allowed to take up a seat on the College of Commissioners in Brussels. 
What about the idea that the European People's Party, very specifically, led in the European Parliament by Manfred Weber, who had aspirations, was the candidate to be the European Commission president? Emmanuel Macron put paid to that. Is this payback? Well, clearly, Weber did not come in to give von der Leyen a helping hand here and make sure this candidate, uh, we believe Sylvie Goulart, is a friend, a personal friend of von der Leyen's, and Weber certainly was not able to help get her nomination through. Okay, well, it's uh, dramatic stuff. And also, uh, one more thing that we learned this today is the Romanian government has just fallen. So, another complicating factor, right, in terms of getting this commission through. Well, it's quite something that, in fact, France is now in a ignoble club with Romania and Hungary as the three countries whose nominees have been rejected. I don't think that's what Macron had in mind when he began this recent push to bring France closer to Central and Eastern Europe. Probably not. David, thanks very much. Thank you. Now let's get right to our podcast panel. Hi, Remontaz. Bonjour. And live stateside once again, Matt Karnichnik, where are you this week? I'm actually in my home state of Arizona. Okay, and how is the weather in Arizona these days? Well, it's nice and sunny and hot as it should be. Glad to hear that. Well, we're getting into another extraordinary story here, really, and that concerns the US ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland. Even though he isn't the most high-profile diplomat, he has made a name for himself here in Brussels. And now he finds himself at the centre of the impeachment battle in Washington. Just in case you haven't followed the news, a brief recap. Text messages have emerged featuring Sondland and according to critics at any rate they point to the suggestion that the United States and in particular Donald Trump was threatening to withhold military aid to Ukraine until Ukraine agreed to launch an investigation into the son of Trump's political rival Joe Biden. We should of course say the administration disputes that version of events but it's certainly kicking up quite a storm in Washington. And Sondland was part of this group, the so-called Three Amigos that you heard at the beginning of the podcast, who were in regular contact with top Ukrainian officials. So that's where these text messages come in. So, Matt, what do you make of all this? You know, looking back at our own reporting on him and experiences with him, it's actually not that surprising because he's a very much a political figure, somebody who's tried very hard to curry favor with Trump. I remember not too long ago after we did a profile of another European ambassador, another American ambassador in Europe, Rick Grinnell, the U.S. ambassador to Germany. As soon as that story ran, all of a sudden our phone at Politico was ringing and it was none other than Ambassador Sunland, sort of wondering why we weren't paying more attention to him. So I think it's quite interesting that you know, this this kind of drive to get Trump's attention appears to have gone, you know, maybe a little bit too far here in engaging with the Ukraine and trying to do Trump's bidding in terms of, you know, maybe go a bit too far to ensure that uh, the Ukrainians were investigating Trump's political enemies back home. Yeah, Matt, you're absolutely right. Uh, Gordon Sondland has been going out of, a way, of his way to, to make a name for himself here. We've also had him as a guest on the podcast fairly recently, we should say, and um, regular readers of Political will know he's also been uh, active, even stateside, during the UN General Assembly. He arranged a, a dinner with various senior EU officials or incoming EU officials, and Ivanka Trump and her husband, uh, Jared 
Kushner. So he's, as you say, somebody who's very much uh, sought to insert himself into European political and diplomatic life, uh, even though he's not uh, a career diplomat. Reem, what do you make of it from Paris? I think the perspective from Paris is maybe seen through the the prism of the sort of the conflict in, in Ukraine and the Normandy sort of format, um, diplomatic effort by the French. And in a way, all of these troubles that the Trump administration is now running into very publicly actually helps the Franco-German effort in the sense that they are now the only game in town. In France, the feeling is that after everything that's been revealed related to the Trump administration and the current impeachment proceedings, no Trump administration official is going to be able to sort of get involved in in Ukraine until the end of this administration's sort of presidency. Yeah, uh, Matt, just briefly, what do you think in terms of US-EU relations? One question that's bound to be asked is, you know, can an ambassador be effective when he's obviously going to be spending quite a bit of time talking to lawyers and dealing with this whole impeachment inquiry in the US? Well, that's one of the questions that they're asking over here in the United States now is how long Sondland can remain in this position. And there's a lot of speculation that he's going to need to remain here. He's going to need to get his own legal counsel. He already has uh, lawyers, but he's going to you know, need to really lawyer up, as they say, and uh, focus his attention on dealing with this ongoing impeachment inquiry. To just come back to what Reem was saying, I mean, I, th- I think the unfortunate thing here is the impact this this will have on, on Ukraine. The situation with Russia becomes much more difficult because I'm, I'm not really sure that it's realistic for France and Germany to broker a deal with Russia without the strong engagement of the United States. And certainly the involvement of uh, Sondland and the other Trump administration officials here on this matter has had almost nothing to do with with Russia and the eastern Ukraine and Crimea. And I think this is one of the things that really kind of shocked some of the career State Department people involved was that all of this back and forth that was going on between Sondland and the special envoy, Volker, and the acting U.S. ambassador in Ukraine didn't even mention the Donbass region or, or Russia in any of this. So if Ukraine gets kind of dragged into this whole impeachment inquiry, um, the Trump administration will probably be even less inclined to go to bat for them vis-a-vis Russia. Right. I mean, that's the strange thing about this. Of course, the, the relatively new Ukrainian president is a former actor and he's ended up in a, as a kind of guest star in somebody else's show. And I'm guessing this is probably a, a role he could do without. Let's move on to, to Brexit. Maybe we try and do this uh, a little bit more uh, quickly. Also because Annabelle is not uh, with us this week enjoying a, a well-earned break. But Brexit rolls on and we've had developments both from Paris and from Berlin this week. Uh, what's uh, Emmanuel Macron been saying on Brexit, uh, Reem? Sort of last Sunday, he had a phone conversation with Boris Johnson, uh, during which, uh, you know, his officials told us that he sort of set down a deadline for the end of this week to assess whether 
a deal is even possible. Uh, so we're all waiting for that. Beyond that, French officials have been uh, very tight-lipped. Macron is uh, having dinner with uh, Merkel, the German chancellor, on Sunday, among other things, to discuss what they're going to do next week at the European Council. Um, and we also have to remember one more thing, which is that the College of Commissioners, of new commissioners in Europe, is about to start, sort of November 1st is their kickoff date. And uh, Macron is very keen on the new commission starting off with a bang, with a strong agenda and not being held back by Brexit. So that's something he's going to work very hard to get. Well, I mean, that really would be a bang if you had uh, no deal Brexit on, on day one. But Matt, um, kind of tensions came boiling over again this week, and it was after a phone call between Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel. What did you make of that? Well, there's this old uh, German card game some of the listeners might be familiar with. It's called Schwarze Peter, which means Black Peter. And generally, when you're playing the game, you don't want to be the one ending up with this card. And I think a lot of German political hands look at uh, the last few days and suspect that Boris Johnson is trying to uh, deal the Black Peter to Angela Merkel here, uh, basically leave her with the blame if this whole situation implodes, which it looks like it's going to in the coming weeks. Nobody wants to be left holding the bag uh, in terms of the responsibility for there not being a deal. But th there really hasn't been any any movement on either side. And um, it's now become kind of a, a PR game to um, show that on the European side, at least, that they are not responsible for this situation. And on the UK side, to basically say that, you know, they put forth a good faith effort, put this latest proposal on the table, and, and the Europeans have rejected it out of hand. That said, I seriously doubt the veracity of this readout that emerged a couple of days ago out of London saying that Merkel uh, told Johnson during a phone call that there basically was no chance of a deal if uh, Northern Ireland didn't remain in the in the customs union. It's just not the way she does things to speak in, in such uh, absolute terms, certainly not with somebody like Boris Johnson. You know, I'm curious what you two make of, of this decision and this move by uh, Downing Street to put out that readout of the conversation with Merkel, because Macron has always been sort of made out to be the bad cop in all of this. And suddenly, the British are alienating Merkel in such a sort of public way. Why tactically would they do that? Well, my, my sense is that they really just want to point the blame at her in the end and be able to say to their own constituents in, in the UK, look, we did what we could. Uh, Merkel decided she didn't want to do a deal with us. So it's not our fault. It's really the Europeans that were uh, being unreasonable here. But why not blame Macron? Well, I think that, you know, Merkel is an easy target in a way because she doesn't fight back and, and she actually hasn't fought back. And it was interesting that the Berlin response to the disclosure of this call was basically to stick to their longstanding policy of not disclosing information about uh, Merkel's private phone calls with, with other world leaders. Yeah, it was in, in sense, the, you know, the classic Merkel response, in other words, a non-response. And, uh, you know, you would expect in a lot 
of other politicians would have come out aggressively briefing in return, but it just didn't happen. It's quite remarkable, really. So we're just talking about a country potentially, finally, eventually leaving the EU. The other big decision coming up at the European Council next week, potentially, if it's not made in the days leading up to it, is whether two more countries should be invited to join the EU, namely North Macedonia and Albania. This one seems to be hanging in the balance as far as we can see here. There's a a lot, I would say, you know, the majority of EU member states are in favour, at the very least for North Macedonia. But again, uh, as is often the case, Reem, we're left uh, wondering what Emmanuel Macron is going to do. France, again, you know, playing its cards close to its chest. What's his thinking in terms of being the the enlargement sceptic, which he seems to have become in the past couple of years, despite being a guy who's, you know, always um, enthusing about Europe generally? Well, the position in, in, in Paris is definitely one of yes for enlargement, but not now. This is very much to do with Macron's desire to make sure that Europe, as we know it right now, the EU, uh, is consolidated, um, that things are working better. He feels like right now with, you know, with the 27 or 28 members, whatever happens with Brexit, there's a lot uh, within those existing members still to do in order to, you know, produce what he likes to call European power. And so he feels perhaps right now is not the right moment to bring in two more people that aren't necessarily at the level required uh, on some issues like maybe rule of law. And so he's not saying no forever. But, um, you know, it's going to be very hard for him to say yes immediately right now. We are going to find out sort of the official French uh, position next week on the 15th uh, is when they're sort of expected to uh, to announce it or at least share it with the entire sort of uh, uh, EU 27, 28 member states. Right. But there's also a domestic element here, isn't there? I mean, it does feel like, you know, enlargement is not particularly popular in a lot of Western EU member states. You know, Macron's main opponent in in France at the moment is the far right, is Marine Le Pen, right? Is there a domestic calculation here too? You know, there's always been uh, sort of in France this fear, you know, for the longest time it was uh, sort of symbolised by what they called uh, the Polish plumber. And, uh, you know, there's this fear that the more they enlarge to the east, the more they bring in cheaper uh, labor that can sort of take away from French uh, sort of uh, employment. And as you know, uh, French unemployment is still quite a big problem. So that probably does uh, sort of play into Macron's position, yes. Okay, Matt, what do you make of it from the German perspective? The Bundestag has weighed in in favour of both North Macedonia and Albania with uh, more strings attached in the case of Albania. How much is Germany, is Berlin willing to push on this, do you think? Well, I speak from experience that the uh, Polish plumber has gotten pretty expensive. So I think a lot of Germans are uh, would be quite willing to deal with the Albanian plumber or the uh, North Macedonian. <laughs> He's just a uh, symbol, plumber. Matt. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I well, do think not in Matt's that life. He's a real guy. Yeah, I, I think it is a bit exactly. I, I think it is a bit disingenuous, though, on on the part of the French and others to stand in the way of this because, you know, agreeing is not saying that they would join tomorrow. It's just starting a process which 
you know, it could end up lasting, you know, many years or definitely will last many years. The question is, how many years will it last? And I think it's all about the symbolism of it. Macron and others who are dealing with parties like the Rassemblement National and, and the, the Freedom Party and, and what have you are not really very excited about letting in Albania or appearing to agree to let in Albania in, in particular. So I think the, the Germans have a more pragmatic view of this. I think the best hope that North Macedonia and Albania have is that everyone will be so focused on Brexit next week that this might just squeak in because it makes a lot of sense in a number of ways. Uh, they've been talking about it forever. And Merkel, at the end of the day, is a huge advocate for the region. And so I wonder if this might be, assuming this will be one of uh, her last opportunities to uh, help the region, that she will you know, put the screws into Macron at the last minute and say, look, we need to do this, and, and hope then that it'll go more, more or less unnoticed in the melee that promises to ensue on the uh, Brexit front. Okay, well, we'll see if that's how it turns out. Uh, Reem, Matt, uh, thanks very much. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Thank you. Cheers. Now for our feature interview this week, our producer Christina Gonzalez, who also covers lobbying and transparency, sat down with MEP Daniel Freund. Not once, but twice this week. Now, Freund was part of the Green Wave, which brought many new green MEPs to Brussels, but Parliament certainly not new to him. He worked as an advisor in the Parliament before going on to lead the EU integrity team at the NGO Transparency International for five years. Here's the first part of their conversation from earlier this week, where they talk about, among many other things, Sylvie Goulard. And one of the issues that came up during her hearing, which we talked about earlier in the podcast, the fact that she earned an additional €10,000 a month as an MEP by working as a special advisor for a California think tank. So let's have a listen to that part of the conversation now. My name is Daniel Freund, uh, just elected a couple of months ago to the European Parliament. I come from civil society. I've led the work of Transparency International on the EU institutions for the last five years. So I've been very closely following the work around lobby transparency, about ethics issues, also about anti-corruption work in the, in the EU, and uh, now hope to bring that work directly into the EU institutions and, and continue, in a way, the, the, the work here directly from the European Parliament. Has that been a difficult transition to go from being in the NGO space into now as a politician where you're beholden more to the party, let's say, or others? Um, not difficult. Uh, and it has been surprisingly quick for me uh, how quickly you actually go into the into the crooks of the debate, uh, basically a day and a half after arriving from the campaign trail uh, back here to, to Brussels, we were in the middle of the first ever coalition talks at, at the EU level, and, uh, and I was very closely following those coalition talks, making sure that our points on anti-corruption, on an independent ethics body, on lobby transparency would feature prominently in that potential coalition agreement, which, which didn't come about in the end. But nevertheless, the, the negotiations were there and I was uh, right in the middle of that from day one. And that was very thrilling, very exciting. And, and in a way, we've continued that now with the with the hearings. Uh, the next thing that will follow is the work program, of course, of the European Commission. So not that much time to adapt and learn, but we, we have to learn by doing and in, in the middle of the action. 
Have the Greens taken specifically to your issues of transparency? And is there something that you, for example, would wish that your party would do differently on the issue of transparency? I mean, I feel like the, the Greens have always been leading on those issues. And uh, even when I was at TI, uh, the Green Group would, was probably the one that we worked with the most, that was always most eager to, to take up our proposals from TI, which we would shop around with, with all political groups. And I guess that's the reason why why I ran on the green ticket as well, uh, because the the willingness there to to have an NGO leader run on their on their list was largest. But it is something that even within the party is is something where we always have to work. Uh, where I spend quite a bit of time now in the beginning of the mandate, also just explaining to colleagues uh, what it is that we have achieved now uh, over the last five years, for example, that MEPs now have to publish all their lobby meetings, the new transparency rules that we as Greens have given ourselves on on the general expenditure allowance, for example, the money that MEPs have to run their office, and to always remember colleagues and, and make sure that, that we do lead by example is uh, is constant work, of course, even, even within the party and the group. On the issue of MEPs, you've been quite critical of MEPs, for example, earning money on the side. Can you go a bit more in depth into your criticism of that and some of the recent examples? Yeah. So already when I was at TI, we've done studies on, on how much uh, MEPs make make from their side jobs. And, and now with the with the new batch of declarations coming in from all the new MEPs that came in with the election, uh, TI just published, I think about a week ago or, or two maybe, a new overview of, of how much MEP make on the side. And it's it's staggering how, how some MEPs make way more money on, on the outside than, than from their MEP salary. And obviously with, with those high incomes, there's always a risk for conflicts of interest. So who do those MEPs really serve? Do, do they serve the citizens that elected them or do they serve the companies uh, that, that pay them uh, a large share of their salary? And I think lots of MEPs take this job very, very seriously. They work 80, 90 hours a week uh, and, and are very happy with the salary that we receive here as MEPs. But there's a few that see that very differently and I think we need to do something about that that's why I suggested now a cap on on the amount also because of the debate that we had with uh, around Sylvie Goulard and the high income she had in the past so I'd hope that the criticism that I've heard uh, from conservatives from social democrats during the Goulard hearings now translate also into the willingness to actually change something about it and introduce a cap. If we can transition to the hearings. We've seen, for example, even before we got to these hearings, that there was the pushback against two proposed commissioners. I was wondering if you could walk us through a bit more of that process, because it's been criticized, for example, of being rather non-transparent for those people outside of the system. So we we have a new process. Uh, this, this was the first time that the European Parliament did a conflict of interest check. Uh, on the on the commissioner candidates uh, that was only introduced during the last mandate. I did work quite a bit on this because I, I, I contacted uh, civil society organizations, for example, the chapters of TI uh, in, in all the member states, some investigative journalists to to actually gather all the information that's available on the on the commissioner candidates, and that then for us Greens fed into into that process in the in the Legal Affairs Committee, where. 
yeah, all the political groups came with the information that they had. There was an exchange, and at the end of the day, there was a vote whether uh, the committee found that these uh, candidates were free of conflicts of interest or not. And uh, at the end of the day, decided that two of the candidates were, were, were not free of conflicts of interest and could not move forward to the hearings. But it also cleared the 24 other candidates purely based on the on the declaration, right, on the declaration that they themselves submitted to the European Commission and found that there was no conflict of interest between that declaration and their activity uh, that they were meant to pick up. So the rest of the information, and we heard that in the hearing of Goulard, that, that there were other issues in, in her past, can then still be part of the overall assessment in, the, in, in, in those hearings. But do you think that that process was politicized? Because that's also been some of the criticism as well. I, I don't think so. From what I've heard, and I definitely know from, from my group colleagues that have sat in, in that process, that this was precisely not a political process, but, but rather a legal examination of um, was there a conflict of interest or not. And uh, that I think colleagues have taken that very seriously not to politicize that process. So to you, the process was transparent enough? I mean, it was a non-political process. Now, the, these exchanges in the Legal Affairs Committee and, uh, and and all the related documents for now have not been published. Um, they they were not transparent. What one can argue now, if if in the future we we have to re-examine if if all this should take place behind closed doors, and I think particularly on those cases where maybe overall the committee has has cleared a candidate, but nevertheless there were certain pieces of information that emerged during the process, it is of course very important that those colleagues then actually doing the hearing of, of those commissioner candidates are aware of, of all the information. And I think that has probably not worked perfectly th- th- this first time around, uh, and, and, and we can learn from that and do it better next time. So room for improvement. Yeah. What do you propose? Is there being any sort of necessary improvements on the rules that govern outgoing commissioners? Well, with with the uh, Barroso Commission, when it left five years ago, we saw that uh, over 50% of the commissioners actually took up positions in, in registered lobby organizations afterwards. And, and I think that is something that we have to very closely monitor, that there is no conflicts of interest and that the the general population doesn't get the impression that these people are just in it for for the money they're using politics as a sort of springboard uh, to to get rich afterwards in the in the private sector and the well Juncker prolonged the the cooling off periods uh, and I think that was a necessary first step but I also think that the supervision here needs to be done by an independent body uh, because at the moment uh, it's basically the the new commissioners that check on on those that are leaving and and they might already have in mind well a couple of years down the line I'm going to be in that exact same position and so they in a way have a conflict of interest already making that assessment and and I think both for the commission but also for for members of the European Parliament, we need an independent body that can can supervise these situations, can make recommendations or sanctions if, if rules are broken. Von der Leyen has now uh, endorsed that proposal as well uh, to create that independent ethics body. So I, I really hope that during this legislature uh, we, we make that happen and uh, prevent that in the future these kind of ethics issues arise in the EU institutions. You were listening to the first part of a conversation with our producer Christina Gonzalez and MEP Daniel Freund. And Freund has participated in the past couple of weeks in a number of confirmation hearings for would-be European commissioners. 
Producer Christina caught up with him again later this week to get his take on those hearings and talk a little more about a proposed independent ethics body to govern all EU institutions. This time they had a chat in the middle of the green floor in the European Parliament, so you may hear a bit more noise than usual as democracy is at work all around them. I've been part of three hearings now as coordinator in the in the Constitutional Affairs Committees. The first was with Cevcevic, who's going to be commissioner in charge of interinstitutional relations. Uh, so him, I, I ask him about the one in, one out principle, which I think is one of the most bogus ideas uh, of, of the new commission. For, for each new law, they would scrap an old one. And um, I, I think... I, I don't know how that's supposed to work uh, because it will will block the new commission. They have 97 new proposals for laws in the mission letters and I asked Cevcevic, they don't have a list of 97 uh, proposals, what they want to scrap in, in old laws, so it will basically just block them. And the second hearing we had on Thursday last week was on Schuitza, uh, the commissioner that's going to be in charge uh, on democracy and demography and mostly is supposed to lead the conference on the future of Europe. And I um, don't think that she is fit for that job and we Greens um, well opposed her uh, becoming commissioner for this. In the past she has repeatedly voted against what I think are some of the core values to to discuss the future of Europe, rule of law, equality and uh, transnationalist for example is another issue that she has voted against so uh, now credibly leading this discussion on the future of Europe including on transnationalists on on how we want to protect the rule of law uh, I, I don't think she's the right person for that. And then this Monday, we had the third hearing with Jerova, who's going to be the commissioner for values and, and transparency. She did quite well in, in the hearing, in particular on my question on the fight against corruption. I think she, she sent some positive messages. Uh, the commission had a bit abandoned the work on, on corruption during the last mandate. They scrapped the anti-corruption report after the first iteration, and she has promised that she will bring back regular reporting for each member state on, on corruption issues and that she will issue recommendations to member state on this so I think that's a that's a strong signal and she has also spoken of course about the commitment by the new commission to establish an independent ethics body I think really the key element that this is all about is how independent it is and that we're taking the the final decision on sanctions out of the hands of commissioners and MEPs. Because what we see in the in the current situation, where we have an advisory committee in the parliament, we have a somewhat independent advisory body uh, in, the, in the commission, but in both situations, when there is ethics issues, when there is people going through the revolving door or breaking ethics rules, the final decision always lies either with the College of Commissioners or the President of the European Parliament. And the self-policing by the institutions just doesn't work and we've seen time and again that no sanctions are, are, are handed out and we don't have a functioning ethics regime and, and I'd really hope that this independent ethics body is so well resourced and, and can actually do that job and is independent enough to issue those uh, sanctions where adequate and necessary uh, and that we no longer have the self-policing by the institutions. 
Would you say that the issues of transparency and ethics have become more mainstream? I think so. I think uh, the issue has uh, has definitely crept to, to the forefront. Um, there were large debates now about the new process that we have in the uh, Legal Affairs Committee. There will actually be, uh, we just changed the um, agenda of the, of the mini plenary we have in Brussels this week of the European Parliament. So there will be de- a debate in plenary uh, on, uh, on ethics questions and conflicts of interest and how we prevent them in the EU institutions. So yes, I think it is an issue that has come to the, to the forefront and where the Parliament is taking a much closer look. And, and I think if we had the same process in place that we have now five years ago or even before, um, there would have been many more commissioners in the past that actually would not have been able to take up office. What do you see as being the most pressing issue when it comes to ethics or transparency? I think it is the creation of, of an independent ethics body. I also think that we need to be uh, very quick now in finalizing the discussions around the mandatory lobby registers so that we finally do get it and, and that we have a proper reporting mechanism and that all the lobbyists uh, are on the register and that the meetings with them are published. And I think for that, the, the, the core element is actually to bring the council into the framework of the lobby register. What we always see here when, when we make laws in the EU institutions is that the European Parliament is already really quite transparent. And also the Commission has, has made a lot of progress over, over the last few years with the, the fact that they now publish their lobby meetings, that they have longer cooling-off periods uh, now under the Juncker Commission. And, and really, the, 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 the black box that remains is, is the council where the governments of the member states sit. And I think that will be the, the big issue for, for the next few years, to, to really push governments that they understand that they are also part of this legislative machine and that they need to do their part too. If you look at the differences in the in transparency between the European Parliament and the Council, it's just astonishing how obscure, how intransparent uh, the Council is. In a way, it has it's still a bit stuck in this diplomatic conference of the 1950s, uh, but it is the second chamber of the European Union and it uh, should behave like it. And I think that's really what we need to change. That's all we have time for this week on the new EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and send us feedback, ideas or tips to podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.